0: Does heavy marijuana use actually alter your brain tissue? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Dr. Jean Cadet, Chief of the Molecular Neuropsychiatry Branch of the NIH and NIDA. Dr. Cadet, welcome to the show. Very glad to be here. Can we start just by talking about how common marijuana use is in the year 2008?
1: The last papers that were published on the epidemiology uh, suggest that about 15 million people have used marijuana in the last month. In 2006, about 73% of current illicit drug users use marijuana, and about 53% of those is marijuana alone.
0: So what are the accepted behavioral and physiological effects of smoking marijuana long-term?
1: A lot of scientists have looked at the acute effects of marijuana in terms of the cardiovascular system and also in terms of brain system. For example, in control studies, marijuana has been shown to cause tachycardia, It's also been shown to cause orthostatic hypotension, with some people complaining of syncopal changes. Interestingly, it increases myocardial oxygen demand, and in some cases, in older individual has been reported to cause acute myocardial infarction.
0: Well, those are the negative effects. Are there any known positive effects?
1: The reason why people use marijuana is because it makes them feel good, It relaxes people. So those are the positive effects of marijuana, the psychological well-being effects of the
0: drug. Dr. Kade, you did a study that was published in Drug and Alcohol Dependence on altered brain tissue. Can you tell me a little bit about that study?
1: In that study, we admitted a number of people to a research unit that we have in the intramural program of uh, the NIDA intramural uh, program. So in that study, we look at uh, MRI, and at the same time, we're doing some PET study. So the MRI in magnetic resonance imaging, we looked at the brain composition, and using computer program. And what we found was that the marijuana users had changed in the composition in their brain that were very significant.
0: What part of the brain, Dr. Cadet, has the most cannabinoid receptors?
1: You can find
0: a lot of cannabinoid receptors in
1: the frontal cortex, in the basal ganglia, that is the striatum, putamen, a lot of cannabinoid receptors in the hippocampus. There's another very, very important area that people don't talk about much. It's the nucleus accumbens, which is the area that's uh, part of the reward system in mammalian brain.
0: What part of the brain stimulates the munchies that people get when they smoke marijuana?
1: That's probably related to the hypothalamus feeding centers because their CB1 receptors have been found in the hypothalamic nuclei of
0: if you've just tuned in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskel, and My guest today is Dr. Jean Cade, Chief of Neuropsychiatry Branch of the NIDA and NIH. And we're talking about how marijuana can actually alter brain tissue. Dr. Cade, the study you did in NeuroImage on PET scanning, what do you see differently when you look at people that are heavy users versus normal users or light users or no users?
1: In this paper that we published in 2005, where we look at the neural substrate of faulty decision-making in marijuana users, we looked at cognitive testing, a test called the Hioa gambling task, mm-hmm. and we also look at imaging using PET. So in that study, what we found was that patients who chronically use marijuana had abnormalities in learning, which were correlated to abnormalities in the frontal lobe. So.
0: It's um, interesting. So you had a physiological effect and an anatomical effect. That is correct. And what about in people that were? non-users. Was that your control group? Our control group
1: was a non-user group. So if you look at the non-user group, they activate their brain one way. And when you look at the marijuana users, they didn't activate the same brain systems. It is as if the people who were using marijuana were compensating for abnormalities in some of those brain systems that are thought to be related to performing this Iowa gambling task.
0: Tell me a little bit more about the Iowa gambling task. Do you have them playing blackjack and poker? It is actually similar to that
1: because what they have to do is pick from a different deck. If you make decision over time in one, what they call the low-risk deck, you make more money. But if you take from the high-risk deck, you might make some money on occasions, but you end up losing money in the long term. Yet the marijuana users tend to take card from the high-risk deck more often than people who are control group in that study.
0: So it sounds like if you spend time in Las Vegas, you should not smoke pot or you'll even lose more.
1: That's actually very interesting because what this tells you is that high-risk gamblers might actually have abnormalities in some brain regions.
0: That's a new study to scan people with gambling problems and see if they have similar take-up or lack of take-up on PET scans.
1: That's a very important set of study to do. I think there's a group, I cannot remember them of head who are actually doing that study. And the interesting thing about it, if you look at the psychiatric diagnosis in terms of what's listed under pathological gambling and drug abusers, marijuana abusers, cocaine abusers, they have a lot of characteristics that are very, very similar.
0: Has anyone been able to reproduce the results of your study, or has it not been attempted? You know, either the physiological one or the PET image scanning.
1: Other people have replicated that the marijuana users make bad decisions in terms of using the high-risk deck instead of the low-risk deck. That's been replicated. In terms of the physiological studies, we're not aware of anybody who's done a study similar to the way we've done it, but other people have reported abnormalities in the frontal lobe of marijuana users. People like Linda Chang have done studies using PET and looking at marijuana users, and they've found abnormalities in
0: Uh, users. Dr. Kade, are these results permanent or if someone is a heavy user and they quit, will their brain kind of come back to normal?
1: It's very difficult to tell based on what we've done. What we've done is bring a patient in and study them over a period of a month. So we bring them in on the research unit. They stop using drug after they arrive. They're not exposed to drug for about a month and we test them at the end of that month, our reports basically deal mostly with that time period of being abstinent from drug for about a month. So the only thing we can really report about is abstinence of one month. You still have the abnormalities. But if somebody were to be absent for six months, a year, we're we presuming, giving the state of the art in brain recovery, that a lot of these people would do much better in terms of learning and memory tests at six months to a year. Because, as you know, the literature now suggests that we keep on making new cells in our brain and there's a potential for recovery.
0: When you mentioned the parts of the brain that have the most cannabinoid receptors, you mentioned the basal ganglia, and I immediately thought of, does this make a patient more likely to develop Parkinson's disease later in life if they kind of destroy that part of the brain. Is there any connection between those two?
1: Not with marijuana users. We're not predicting that people would develop Parkinson's disease. It More likely, in terms of movement disorders, the two drugs one could think about that might do that, methamphetamine and ecstasy. But in terms of the cannabinoid receptors, the way they're located... And the chronic administration of this drug, if you look at dopamine level in the striatum, there isn't any evidence that dopamine level, which is responsible for the symptoms of Parkinson's disease, decreased. So we do not expect that they'll develop movement disorders such as tremors or rigidity kinds you see in Parkinson's disease.
0: Dr. Cadet, the drug accomplia, which was not approved in the United States but has been approved in Europe and other countries. Were you upset that it wasn't approved? Do you agree that it shouldn't have been approved? Do you have any experience with it?
1: We haven't had any experience with it. I've talked to, I guess I talked recently to somebody who was interested in that drug, and I don't think the people in the United States thinks that those drugs would be approved in the United States. I've not worked with them, so I don't have a view about it. But from what I was told, I don't think it would be approved in the United States.
0: My last question is a personal one. I'm a practicing internist, and I have many patients who smoke marijuana chronically, and they seem to be doing well, But if they do suffer some consequences and I want to get them to stop, is there something you know of that I can help them stop smoking marijuana?
1: It's very difficult. As you know, addiction is a recurrent disease, as in diabetes and high blood pressure. Patients do well if they take the medications that you give them. And with addiction, it's very, very difficult because uh, people take these drugs because these drugs make them feel good. So it's even more of a problem trying to get people to stay abstinent. My best thing is to look in your locale to see whether there is a very good addiction medicine doc. As you know, there's the addiction practitioners in every city and state nowadays. So I'll refer them to a practitioner who has experience dealing with that patient population. That's the best we can do in terms of trying to treat a population. It's very difficult. People like using marijuana. It's very difficult for them to give it up. could be a potential problem. The reason I'm saying that is because in the case of somebody, if you're following a patient who have had a myocardial infarction and giving that study that was published out of Harvard, The chance of them suffering from another myocardial infarction is increased. The mortality rate is also increased if they continue to use marijuana. For the young population, the major side effects of marijuana might not be a major issue at this point in time, but people who use marijuana get to be in their 40s and their 50s, and if they have other risk factors, I think that's where your problem as a physician arises because You need to be able to work with those patients, and they might not want to give up using marijuana.
0: Dr. Jean Cadet, thank you very much for coming on the show. I'm Dr. Larry Kaskill, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. To comment or listen to our full library of on-demand podcasts, please visit us at reachmd.com. If you register with the promo code RADIO, we'll give you six months free of streaming ReachMD you can listen to at home or in your office. You can also reach us by phone now with comments or suggestions at 888-MD-XM-157. And thanks for listening.